Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And what a year have we had. This is definitely going to go down in the history books. And that's pretty much all I want to say about 2020, because I'm sure every single one of you is about as sick and tired of it as I am. But I want to quickly thank everyone for their continued support of the podcast. And thank you to everyone who took time out of their day to submit the podcast survey. That podcast survey definitely helps us to plan for next year what it is the changes that we need to do and the different types of guests that uh, we will have coming onto the show. And there was a lot of really good ideas on that survey that people brought up. And uh, one of the things that I'm trying to figure out how to create a good system around is people want to be able to submit questions to guests before I go into the recording process. So uh, one of the things I'm going to be focusing on is trying to figure out how to do that in a an easy way and a very organized way so that if people do have questions for specific guests, then hopefully I can get those added into some of the episodes. But to go along with the the podcast survey, uh, we had a couple winners from the different giveaways that we had. So Marlene of West Virginia won the Vitamix, and then Blythe from Washington won the $100 gift card. So thanks everybody for taking the time to do the survey and to join the giveaway. Now, in 2020, our podcast has nearly doubled its total downloads uh, compared to the previous year, so compared to 2019. And uh, in 2020, we released 40 episodes compared to 30 episodes back in 2019. Almost every single year, I take one or two months off at the beginning of the year because that's when I have a lot of focus with uh, different coaching clients and everything else as we enter the new year. Um, And then this year, going into 2021, we already have episodes recorded, so uh, uh, we're probably not going to take the full two months off of the podcast like we normally do, but we will take off a little bit of time. Now, if there is specific guests you want to hear more of on the show, then just reach out to info at summitforwellness.com and let us know what it is you like about that guest, and we'll do the best that we can to get them onto the show. And in 2021, alongside of the podcast, we're going to have a huge focus on video, uh, video content with the podcast itself, so having actual video recordings of myself chatting with the guests, and also uh, more videos on YouTube. So uh, I started to do a lot more adventure-style videos on YouTube at the end of this year. So if you are uh, looking for motivation or inspiration of different hikes or different types of outdoor trips that you want to go on, then go to the YouTube channel and you can see some of those. But on YouTube, we're going to be following that motto of move more, eat well, and be adventurous. So I'm going to be creating a lot more videos around that. So a lot more exercise videos or stretching uh, options or ways to keep your body uh, moving efficiently and how to fuel your body and eat in a way that benefits your body. And then, of course, we're going to continue adding our adventure videos onto the platform as well. So now that we have all that out of the way, 
This episode is all about the top five episodes from 2020. Now, our guidelines for what counts as a top episode is based off of uh, people's responses to episodes and the total number of downloads in the first month of the episode being released. And because we have to have at least a month after an episode is released to see those first month downloads, our range of episodes goes from December to December. So any episodes released in December this year does not count for this year. That counts for next year, which means for this year, uh, December of 2019, those episodes are in the running for this year's top five breakdown as well. So let's get right into our top five episodes for 2020. Number five. Coming in at the number five position for 2020 is episode 102 with Dr. Brianne Callanan on how to have a healthy gut and issues to look out for. This episode was all about your digestive system and how important the digestive system is in the overall health of the body. So in this episode, we actually went through every step of the digestive tract, uh, things to look out for, different signs and symptoms to pay attention to, and how to correct different imbalances that might be happening within the GI tract. So here is a little snippet from episode 102. So let's go down from the mouth to the stomach. And you talked mm -hmm. about H. pylori. Um, a lot of people have heartburn, especially if they're coming off of a North American diet. So can mm -hmm. you talk about um, that whole situation there where people have heartburn and they're taking uh, medication to try to reduce their acid and what that does mm -hmm. to the rest of the system? Yeah, so H. pylori is one bacteria that can be a main cause in those who are experiencing GERD or heartburn. We do want to pick that up adequately. I use a GI map DNA stool test to pick that up. And the reason I like this test is because it shows us things called virulence factors. And what that means is how pathogenic is the H. pylori, meaning how likely is it to create stomach ulcers, duodenal ulcers. We can have carriers of H. pylori as long as they don't have any signs and symptoms. They have zero virulence factors, completely fine, don't need to be treated. That's why I like to see the full report to note whether or not this is something that I need to treat. The conventional treatment for dealing with H. pylori is quadruple therapy, which is four different antibiotics. The GI MAP test will show you if you have resistant genes. The reason they have to keep adding on more and more antibiotics is this bacterium has become really resistant. So we can look at the DNA genes in your DNA stool test and we can determine is an antibiotic therapy appropriate for you. I always choose informed consent. I feel that the best option for each patient is the one that they feel competent with and they're informed with. There are, of course, negative implications on the normal gut flora when we use quadruple therapy. So that's something to keep in mind as well. There's really great research on using things like mastigum, oil of oregano, bismuth, actually from Pepto-Bismol, has some antimicrobial effects as well. So there are effective herbal treatments that we can utilize for H. pylori. In addition, what sometimes happens is people are put on a PPI or a proton pump inhibitor to suppress the amount of acid, and they're put on that for life. Now, you do need to suppress the amount of acid or correct the root cause because you're at increased risk of cell changes in your lower esophagus if you don't. So uncontrolled heartburn is not, not a good option. So to do nothing 
is not the best option for you because you are increasing your risk of esophageal cancers if you have acid reflux. So either being identified and treated in some way, if you're using a PPI, what you have to be mindful of is when you reduce your stomach acid, you're giving a big opportunity for any parasites or worms that's in your water or on your food to survive because you don't have as much acid in your stomach. I often see worms and parasites come up on stool testing in those who have been using PPIs chronically. In addition, if you don't have enough stomach acid, you're going to not be able to absorb key vitamins and minerals that require that. So it becomes a big, becomes a little bit of a big mess, a little big, so mess, what, an actual big mess. <laughs> at what point, <laughs> if someone's been on a PPI for five years, at what point should they think about uh, trying different options? I mean, I would always recommend getting to the root cause, right? Even if we're if we're using a PPI, we're not just, we're not asking why we need to be on this. Why is this happening? If we're not getting to the root cause, then it's just a band aid approach. So your problem really hasn't gone away. Um, we've just put a sticker over it. The same if your oil light is on in your car and you just ignore it. Eventually, there's going to be other consequences of it. We need to look at key minerals like B12, folate, zinc, iron magnesium is another one as well. And if you have to be on a pharmaceutical medication, at least work with um, a pharmacist that can recognize the key nutrients, vitamins and minerals that that medication is depleting and replace that. There is pharmaceutical databases. I mean, I have access to it in my office. And anytime someone's on a pharmaceutical, I'm looking at how we can get to the root cause. So you don't have to take that. But also, if you do need to be on it, um, for various reasons, let's just look up the known depletions that are published out there in the pharmaceutical database and at least replace those. So if you're on a PPI, which reduces your stomach acid, and you're taking um, a supplement that has zinc or any of these nutrients that you might be low on, are you mm -hmm. going to be able to break that down enough to actually absorb it? Or do you think that's kind of wasted not as well. You definitely well. won't be able to absorb it as well. But you want to look at working with a really high quality professional supplement line that is doing third party testing to know that what's on the label is in the bottle. That is a really big issue in terms of supplementation that companies are saying something on the label and you're getting something completely different in the bottle. In addition, vitamins and minerals have different various levels of absorption. Magnesium is a classic example. Minerals need to be bound to something to be absorbed. So for the example of magnesium, it can be bound to citrate. And we know minerals bound to citrate are just not well absorbed. That's why if you take too much magnesium citrate, you have diarrhea. So you wanna look for things like a bisglycinate, a piclinolate, malate, and really try to work with someone or go to a really great health food store that understands supplements and professional lines and find one and do your own research and ask for the certificate of analysis, making sure that what's on the label is, is in the label or at least work with a functional medicine practitioner or naturopath that knows which supplements would be right for you. As you can see, Dr. Brianne knows a lot about the digestive system and it's one of the things that she works on a lot in her uh, weight loss clinic. So you definitely want to listen to that entire episode because she shares a ton of great value in that episode. If you want to listen to that episode, go to summitforwellness.com slash 102. And you'll also be able to see all the show notes, transcripts, resources, and everything else that we share uh, with every single episode that we release. So go to episode 102 to get access to all of that information.
Number four. Coming in at the number four spot is episode 99, Reducing Autoimmune Flare-Ups by Fixing the Gut with Christina Tidwell. As you can see, we had a, a quite a bit of episodes around the gut and the importance of gut health. And in this case, we're talking about the connection with the gut and autoimmune conditions and how it can impact your immune system. So let's go hear a little snippet from episode 99. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that you had mentioned, like the chronic antibiotics and um, being born cesarean and not having that vaginal gulp as you come through the um, vaginal canal, all leads to uh, gut dysfunction. And that's one of the main keys that you talk about with your community when it comes to autoimmunity is how important your gut health is to uh, reducing the symptoms of autoimmunity. So can you just talk a little bit about why is the gut so important when we when it comes to autoimmunity? Yeah, absolutely. I know I, I talk about gut health all the time and it's because it, and we hear so much more about it now, you know, we're always, and I always question things that we hear tons about. I'm like, hmm, is there something to this? Is this a fad? Is it, but gut health is like, you know, goes back so, so far and we're now just really re- remembering um, the importance and the impact that the gut has on our overall health. And one of the main reasons is because, especially with autoimmunity, is 70% of our immune system lies in the area surrounding our gut, in that gut-associated lymphoid tissue, GALT. And so that is whenever there's immune dysfunction going on, we really want to look to that area to see what is going on there. And the you know, that makes sense because our, our digestive system is the most intimate contact we have with the external world in, in the form of the food and water and things that we ingest, right? So our immune system is there and it's ready to protect us against foreign invaders. And that's wonderful. We want our immune system to be able to um, to be able to turn on. And that's what inflammation really is, is like that first response of our immune system. So, you know, in nursing school, that's one of the first things we learn is inflammation is redness, heat, swelling, and pain. And that we, we want that as part of an immune response, but we want it to turn off. And if there is immune dysfunction where our immune system is on overdrive in the case of autoimmunity or producing autoantibodies to our own tissues, we really want to look and see what is going on in the immune system and really looking to the gut because so much of it lies there. And a big part of it is the um, concept of leaky gut or intestinal permeability, which I'm sure people listening to this have probably heard of. It's, you know, more and more um, prevalent in the world. I remember I was like doing a talk this maybe like four or five years ago to in a hospital and um, leaky gut or intestinal permeability is was totally like woo woo you know not founded in science any of this and it's now become much more recognized due to more research um, in the field that it really is something I mean there's still a big gap in there of people that might not you know believe that it's something that's going on but it, it really it really is something that is affecting our our body and our immune system you can probably start to see the theme that improving your gut can have a huge impact on improving overall health and if you have any type of autoimmune condition you should probably take a look at what's going on in your gut and see if that is impacting 
any of the flare-ups that you have. So if you have uh, random flare-ups, take a look at what you might have eaten before it happened or just a state of your GI tract, maybe you're constipated or anything like that, and see if that has any uh, correlation to what's going on with your flare-ups. If you want to see all of the show notes for that episode, which is episode 99, go to summitforwellness.com slash 99. Number three. Coming in at number three is a fan favorite from last year, Kate Mahoney. And she is back on to talk about some of her favorite supplement brands and products. And I wish that we could have just a blanket statement that X product or X brand is the best and go with that one. But unfortunately, the supplement industry is not that simple. So Kate does a fantastic job of walking us through some of the main supplements to be utilizing or paying attention to and which brands are the highest quality from those different categories. So let's go hear a snippet from episode 104 with Kate Mahoney. And since we're talking about microscopic things, how about probiotics? What What's your take on the probiotics out there? Yes, beneficial bugs. Ah, oh, yes, I love them. Okay, well, once again, we could do another whole hour on this topic, but I'm going to try to keep things succinct. Perfect. When it comes to the majority of the probiotics that are on the market, oh boy, this is such a hard topic. Brian, I'm trying to keep things succinct, but it's really difficult. <laughs> okay, we have to keep in mind that almost every single product that is on the market is made with freeze-dried probiotics. Now, when you freeze-dry a probiotic, is it still alive? Let's think about this for a little bit. Okay, cryogenics. When you freeze-dry a human being, are they still alive? No, no, they're not. I mean, we literally haven't figured out how to reanimate living tissue once we kill it. So the majority of what is in these products has been freeze dried, meaning it's no longer alive. And all of these companies are out there saying, oh, no, well, what we're doing is we're basically, you know, just helping your body to remember what should be there. Or some of them will say, oh, no, really? Well, some of them do come back to life. Do they? Do they really? I mean, let's really think about this, okay? They don't. They don't. So the things that we need to remember when it comes to probiotics is all of our mucosal membranes that line the entirety of our digestive system have positive beneficial bacteria. That means our mouth, our esophagus, our duodenum, our small intestine, our large intestine are all full of these beneficial bugs. The one place that is not so full of these beneficial bugs is the stomach because it's very, very acidic. It is literally where we are physically, mechanically, breaking down food for digestion. And the way that our body does that is with high acid. Our stomach is meant to be a pH of between 1.5 to 3. Whereas the place where these beneficial bugs reside is just slightly alkaline of neutral. It's more like optimally a pH of around 7.45. That's very, very different. And these beneficial bacteria, the microbiome and the probiotics, they literally 
cannot survive in an acetic environment with the exception of maybe a couple of them that are made to, but the majority of them, they just can't. So when you look at the probiotics that are on the market, there's a whole bunch that say things like enteric coating. And what's hard about that is we have to ask ourselves, is this product able to literally break down and break open and open up so that these freeze dried, not even alive, supposedly beneficial bacteria can even get where it is that they need to go when they're supposed to get there. That's the majority of probiotics products on the market. Now there are a couple that the, are the exception to the rule and that's what I'm gonna be telling you about right now. So one of my favorite products is called Dr. O'Hara's. And what I love about this product it is it is completely shelf stable. In fact, it should not ever be refrigerated. If you go to a retail place to buy this product and it has been refrigerated, please don't buy it. It should not be refrigerated ever, ever, ever. It just means that whoever it is that is working the supplement department of that store honestly does not understand enough about this product. The other reason why I love this product is Dr. O'Hara created an HCL protected delivery system. Now HCL, hydrochloric acid, is the acid that our stomach makes for us to break down food. So what that means, the HCL protected delivery system, is that he created a completely natural soft gel casing that when it is in an acetic environment, it actually hardens. And when it reaches a pH neutral environment, it softens and opens up so that his products are actually legitimately able to withstand the acetic environment of the stomach and make it directly into the slightly alkaline of neutral pH environment of the duodenum and the small intestines and the large intestines so that all of that beneficial bacteria can get where it needs to go. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, but Kate, you just said that everything out there is freeze dried. Ha ha, not the case with Dr. O'Hara's. Dr. O'Hara's is a really unique product because all of his beneficial bacteria is grown in a food fermented food base. So these probiotics literally grow up together. They're like a happy little family. Oh yeah, that reminds me. I forgot to mention that. There are some products that are on the market that are encapsulated live. They aren't freeze dried. But we need to remember that these different strains are grown up independently of one another. And then they are put together in this product. Now, since they are grown independently of one another, when they actually come in contact with each other, guess what? They see one another as a pathogen. They see one another as a foreign entity that needs to be attacked. So instead of working to repopulate our healthy flora, whichever ones actually manage to survive the acetic environment of our stomach and make it into our small and large intestines, instead of repopulating our body, we'll start attacking each other instead of working together. 
But Dr. O'Hare, since he is a scientist who specializes in and dedicated his life to the study of beneficial bacteria, realized this and was like, well, how can I get around this? So that's where he came up with the idea of growing all of the beneficial bacteria up together inside this fermented food matrix so that when they enter our body, they see each other as a cohesive family that works together to repopulate the healthy flora in our body. The other reason why I really like this product is because Dr. O'Hara actually identified and discovered a very specific strain of beneficial bacteria that recognizes biofilm for what it is. Um, I assume you probably know what biofilm is, Brian, but do you want me to describe what it is for our listeners? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so when we have a pathogen that enters our body, such as a parasite, they actually coat themselves with something known as biofilm. The reason why they do this is because the biofilm mimics what the lining of our small intestine looks like so that our beneficial bacteria that naturally inhabit our own intestines don't understand that there is a pathogen under the biofilm and they don't get rid of it. But this very specific strain of bacteria that Dr. O'Hara found, I forget the exact name of it, but I know that it ends with the derivative TH10. So if you look at the back of the label and you look for the TH10, this is the one that does that. It recognizes biofilm for what it is and what it essentially does is it sticks a big yellow flag in that biofilm saying, hey, beneficial bacteria family, this is a pathogen. Eradicate, 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 and everything else goes, and they go after it and they attack it. There are stories that I have heard, um, this is anecdotal, from practitioners who gave this product to their clients. And their client, and these clients were suffering from really bad parasites that no rounds of antibiotics were helping and had gotten down to 85 pounds. Like these pathogens had just really wreaked havoc on their body. And what they started doing was taking 15 Dr. O'Hara capsules every morning and every night. And after two days of doing this, the dead parasites started coming out of their body in the stools. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like really amazing anecdotal stories about this product. Now, I'm not saying that you should do that, consumers. <laughs> you need to be working with a professional practitioner who is overseeing things and working with you. I'm just sharing this information so that you're aware of just how beneficial this product can be. And there is the over-the-counter line, but there's also a professional product that is fermented for five years instead of the three years that this product is normally fermented for. So that is one of my favorite probiotic products on the market. Absolutely love about it. Love it, could talk about it for days, clearly. As you can see, Kate really knows her stuff when it comes down to supplement quality, brands, and the different products. And in that episode, we covered 
probably close to a dozen different categories of supplements. So if you are taking any supplements whatsoever, you will want to listen to episode 104 or her previous episode as well, because she dives into a lot of different things that make up high quality supplements in her previous episode. Number two. Coming in at number two, which was a very close race to the finish. Uh, This episode was leading the pack the entire year for about 90% of the year until right at the end. And that is episode 107, helping you to recover from mold toxicity with Dr. Jill Krista. Now, Dr. Jill is one of the best people you can go to for mold toxicity and recovering from any type of mold exposure. And she has a lot of different uh, resources that you can always look more into in our show notes at uh, summitforwellness.com slash 107. But here is a little snippet from that episode. So I created a questionnaire for me in clinic when, when I was seeing Lyme patients, Lyme patients and mold patients look very similarly. They have a lot of these um, mimicker kind of situations. So I was having a hard time determining of the people with Lyme disease, which of these people also had mold. So I created a clinical questionnaire that's in my book. Um, But if anyone listening wants it, they can email me and we can send them the questionnaire. It gives you a score that kind of moves the needle. You know, is it possibly mold? Is it probable mold? Or is it not mold at all? and then go looking for other things. And where I see a lot of um, errors happen is that someone does their own mold test in their house or their their mold is at their company, you know, where they're working um, and they're not able to test. And then they get told, nope, it's not mold. And then they go looking for other things. So really understanding when it is mold um, so that you can get on the treatment and get better is really important. So that's why I created the questionnaire because I was just confused myself in practice. I'm like, so, so what does mold look like? Because <laughs> it can look like so many different things. These toxins are nerve toxic. They're toxic to skin. They're toxic to your gut lining. Um, not just nerves, but brain toxic. They secrete chemicals, so it makes you chemically sensitive. When they affect your gut, it can actually cause... Um, gut disruption to the point that you not only have irritable bowel type symptoms, but you can develop new food sensitivities. Um, And then with nerves, you think about where your nerves are in your body everywhere. (laughs) So that can take whatever your pre-existing nerve problem. So if it's sciatica or pelvic pain, we see a lot, bladder symptoms, we see a lot, Um, inner ear ringing. So tinnitus, we see a lot. So it doesn't even have to have the respiratory stuff. If the toxins or if the spores are trapped behind building materials, you may not have any respiratory symptoms at all. But it is quite common to have some kind of sinus congestion or sinusitis or um, respiratory, lung, you know, those kind of symptoms. Um, But it doesn't have to be there. It can still be mold and not have any of those. So you've mentioned that... um the um, relationship between mold and Lyme and how they can kind of go hand in hand. Can mold exposure also flare up other health conditions? Mm-hmm. Uh, Epstein-Barr virus, which is the virus that makes mono, uh, we tend to see those run hand in hand, mold and EBV. There's something that the, the mold does to your immune system. Oh, and I was listening, listing all the places. It's also immune toxic. So these toxins will rewire your genetics of your immune system so that you become more susceptible to it. 
And if you take the 10,000 foot view between Lyme disease and mold, I am more, um, I give more attention and credit to mold uh, because Lyme needs you alive. It needs you alive to be able to survive and mold would prefer to compost you. It doesn't need you alive. It actually would have more food if you would just kick the bucket, which is horribly <laughs> scary. So when I was trying to prioritize, you know, with my Lyme disease patients, okay, what do we do first? What's the most important thing? Because these people are sick, you know, they're, they're really struggling. And we go to the mold first, because we've seen that the when the mold is immune toxic, and rewiring that immune system, it impedes the B cells, which are memory cells. So it makes your body naive to every infection that it's ever seen, and particularly Epstein-Barr virus and the herpes family. So if we see somebody who has chronic fatigue syndrome, my number one thing I look for now is mold because it has actually created a situation where Epstein-Barr and Coxsackie B and some of these other viruses can, can reactivate in a low-grade way in the body. Super interesting. Yeah. And scary, but it's all yeah. treatable. It's all treatable. Yeah. I know. Like if you look out into nature and you look at molds and funguses, they're decomposing. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't it be doing the same thing to us? That's right. We're trying to do it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I say, when my patients are like, oh, I can't exercise. I'm like, the worst thing you can do is be sedentary. Because what is yep. that sending that message that you're sending to mold is, eh, go ahead. You know, because yep. mold grows on sedentary material where air movement doesn't happen. And I completely, I have so much compassion. I completely understand why movement is hard. Um, mold will actually make you not able to handle the natural quote unquote good EMFs that we make when we exercise. When skeletal muscles move, they create electromagnetic frequencies. So there's good EMFs. There's, you know, the EMFs we know from, from external, from Wi-Fi and smart meters and that kind of thing. But exercise creates EMFs. And that's what I'm really trying to impress on people. Okay, if you're EMF sensitive to a really high degree, check for mold to make sure that that is not something that's, that's filling your bucket of EMF tolerance so that you can handle it. We are powerful electronic beings. If you're grounded and healthy, EMF should just bounce right through you. It shouldn't be a problem. But if it is a problem, mold is definitely on my differential. Yeah, one of the symptoms I had when I had my mold exposure was all my tissues got super stiff and painful. Mm. So I couldn't even look over my shoulder to change lanes on the freeway because of how stiff I was. Interesting. So I can see how people get to that point where they're like, I don't want to move. Right. And the body says, don't move. This hurts. This, yep. is, this is negative. Not only is are the nerves toxic and they're pinging every time you use them, um, but also the muscles hurt every time you use them. So what does the body do naturally? Splint. It splints you. Yep. Yeah. So it makes you stiff. That's a great, that's a, that's a great symptom I don't have on my questionnaire. I should add it. Like I said, Dr. Krista is definitely the go-to person if you want to learn about how to help yourself with any type of mold exposure. She has different books and different uh, courses and everything that go along with uh, helping you to eradicate mold. So go to the show notes at summitforwellness.com slash 107, and you can see all of those resources right there. Number one. Okay, we have made it to the top podcast episode of 2020, which is with Dr. Ben Bickman, 
where we talked all about how insulin impacts your weight loss journey. Dr. Ben Bickman does a lot of research around insulin and how it impacts just your metabolic functions. And this episode, we dove deep into insulin and glucose and all of that impact on the body. So let's go hear a little snippet from that episode. As we just mentioned, it is uncommon to get insulin measured from a blood test. And so an alternative is uh, readily available and it is actually still fairly effective. Uh, And that is the looking at some of the lipids that are commonly measured on a blood panel or from a blood test. So what a person does is look at their triglyceride level and they divide it by the HDL cholesterol level or number. So that triglyceride number divided by HDL cholesterol, if that dividend, if that if that number uh, that you get from that ratio of triglycerides divided by HDL, if it is less than 1.5, that's a good sign that indicates a person is very likely insulin sensitive. If it's higher than that 1.5 cutoff, that's a, that's a warning sign or even a bad sign that the person is likely insulin resistant. So if you see those uh, that ratio coming back on your uh, standard lab tests, then that could be a good time to um, further test insulin, or would you go straight into, we have a problem here? Oh, yeah, I think that's pretty safe. That's a, that's a very good warning light, um, and it's time to make an intervention. It's It tracks very well with insulin resistance. Uh, but, I mean, a person certainly could then insist on getting insulin, but I would say don't wait for that to come in. Start making some changes. Okay. Um, is there, and I don't know if this is even possible, is there any way in possibly in the future when someone tests their blood sugar or glucose levels with a, you know their finger prick, if that would also check for insulin levels? Uh, that is That is a long-pursued item brian it is it's extremely um uh, it it is it is a a holy grail of of diagnostics no i don't see that day coming soon Uh, the difference being it is easy to measure a nutrient in the blood from whole blood like like glucose or ketones or lactate where you prick the finger and you can have enzymes on that little stick and it'll then give you a number it'll quantify it as a number of uh, an amount of that molecule in the blood. When it comes to any hormone, insulin included, there is just no rapid at-home way to do that from whole blood yet. I'm sure the day will come, um, but it's not going to be soon. Bummer. If only. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you had mentioned, um, you know, when insulin is going through the system, then your body is basically trying to open up cells and you said muscle cells and fat cells to try and push the glucose somewhere in out of the bloodstream and into those cells. Um, is it is it more likely to go to a fat cell than a muscle cell or are they equal? And then what happens? Like, can they be overfilled? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, just because of normal body mass levels, and and metabolic rate, muscle is the main consumer of that glucose. It is the key glucose sink or disposal. Of course, however, if someone has much more fat mass, uh, then then fat begins to consume more and more of that. And indeed, fat cells take up a very hearty amount of glucose and are very inclined to store it. Fat cells will convert it into into fat to be stored. 
Um, and the liver helps along with that process. The liver will also pull in glucose and convert it to fat when insulin is high and then release that fat as triglycerides actually to be carried on on LDL cholesterol um, molecules. So um, there, there is muscle is the main consumer of that glucose, but of course fat consumes that well. The muscle can't really become over full with energy, um, at least uh, – that that's a tricky question. I mean, energy itself is a difficult concept to define when it comes to biological organisms. Um, but so let's so the muscle cell uh, it, it is doesn't really get too full because it's just using energy so readily. Although it can store glucose as glycogen and it can store fat as triglycerides, it does both, um, and then it uses those. The fat cell, in uh, in stark contrast, has a very clear um, adverse response to excess energy, uh, if we want to call it that. Um, and I'll elaborate. So, if someone is consuming sufficient calories, so they have enough energy to store, and insulin is elevated, then the body will be storing energy. Those are two, I would say, critical factors. There must be sufficient calories to store, and insulin must be elevated, telling the body to store the energy, because that's one of insulin's less appreciated uh, roles or effects in the body. Insulin tells the body what to do with energy. And what that message is to virtually every cell is store energy. Now, if we're telling fat tissue to grow, you know, if someone's eating enough and insulin is elevated, then we're going to start storing energy as fat. Our fat tissue, you know, you could take someone, you could take two guys and you're, jig you're pinching both of their bellies as they're getting fatter and you're seeing it growing, growing. That guy's belly's getting big and that guy's belly's getting big. They can be getting fat through two different ways. But often it's a bit of a mix um, of both of these processes. So I wouldn't want someone to hear me describe this and think that it's going to be totally one or the other. Um, but just for the sake of simplicity, I'll describe it that way. Uh, you can have someone who's getting fat by, by making more fat cells. That's a process called hyperplasia. And so we would say these are hyperplastic fat cells. That just means we're getting more and more cells. What's important about that is that none of the fat cells ever become too big. They always have room to continue to grow. And because insulin is so good at telling fat cells to grow, these fat cells never get very big. They always have vacancy because there's always more fat cells moving in. And so they keep growing and they keep responding to insulin. And the fat cells stay very insulin sensitive. That's a good thing. And so the rest of the body stays very insulin sensitive um, as a result because the fat cells are typically the first cells to fall, so to speak, when it comes to insulin resistance. In contrast, another way of getting fat is through hypertrophy. So the individual fat cell number is set. There are no more fat cells than before. It's just that each individual fat cell then, as a result, is, is that each individual fat cell is growing bigger and bigger. That is hypertrophy. So we would say those are hypertrophic fat cells. And as the hypertrophic fat cell is essentially reaching maximum size, it knows it cannot grow any bigger. But because insulin is still high because of how the person is eating, insulin keeps telling the fat cell to grow bigger. So the only thing the fat cell can do in order to survive is stop listening to insulin. And so the fat cell becomes insulin resistant. 
And so even at, even though insulin is telling it to pull in um, fat and make more fat, it starts to leak fat out. That is something normally insulin would tell a fat cell not to do. Insulin inhibits fat breakdown. But this hypertrophic fat cell says, to hell with you, insulin. I need to start releasing some of this fat that you're force feeding me to take in. I'm going to start leaking some of it out. That is an insulin-resistant fat cell. And now as it is leaking out this fat and it's leaking out other molecules um, as a result of getting too overfull to fat itself, you know, the fat fat cell, then the rest of the body starts to become insulin resistant. But it all started, the first domino to fall was the hypertrophic fat cells. And those fat cells get, you know, four or five times bigger than normal fat cells do. And again, insulin is just, it is essential to that process. And that's it. That's how we will close out 2020. And we're closing it out on a high note. These were fantastic episodes. And I thank all of these guests for coming onto the show and sharing their information. And of course, I thank you for continuing to listen to the show and helping us to kind of guide the conversation in these shows to be able to help you uh, better understand this type of information and to figure out different ways to help your own self and help you out on your health journey. Now, remember, we will be doing more videos type of stuff on YouTube this year in 2021. So if you are a visual person or if you just want to see some of the adventures that we go on, then head on over to summitforwellness.com slash YouTube and subscribe to the channel over there. Uh, we've been adding more and more stuff onto there. So um, we are definitely building up the channel over there. Other than that, uh, have a happy new year. Hopefully the clock strikes midnight tonight and we can finally move on to 2021. And cheers to a new start in 2021. And remember, keep climbing to the peak of your health.